It's claimed that theologians in the Middle Ages used to debate how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. You ever heard that one? It's claimed they used to have debates like that. How many angels could dance on the head of a pin? Now, whether they really did have such debates is a bit unclear. But what is being said there is, and it is fair to say, that they were into debates that were pointless and nothing to do with daily life real life. And that's what many people think of Christianity. Pointless debates that are nothing to do with daily life. How sad if that's the impression that church has given. Christianity is about pointless debates, nothing to do with daily life. Because Jesus wants our daily life. Jesus calls us to follow him in our daily life. And that's what we're going to hear this morning. We're in a series going through Mark's Gospel and we've got to chapter 10. Would you turn again please to chapter 10 verses 1 to 12. You're going to need that in front of you because I must admit that there's quite a lot packed in this morning. I hope we're going to manage that. I can't really manage to slim it down. So I hope you'll work at concentrating as we look at Mark chapter 10. Jesus says very specific things about marriage ethics here in these verses. Now, ethics means what's right and wrong. So Jesus is talking about what's right and wrong in marriage. But we must see that in the broader context so we get some broader lessons. So what I want to do this morning is start with what the whole section is about, briefly, then spend quite a lot of time, I hope you'll keep with me in this, quite a lot of time in these verses and then at the end we've got to go back to the broader lesson and put it in its broader context again. So, let's begin with the context all about following Jesus. Let's see what this section in Mark is about and we're going to rely on some diagrams coming up. Let's have the first one. You see, the Bible sometimes uses what we could call bookends to mark a section. Two things that are the same that say, look, here's the beginning and the end of a section. And in Mark, you get a section beginning with a blind man being healed and then ending with a blind man being healed. And you have to ask yourself, is that just a coincidence or is it marking out here's a section? Well, let's have the next diagram. Because if you were to read all of that section, you'd find between them is a theme. And the theme is being a disciple following the way of Jesus, which is the way of denying yourself and carrying your cross. In fact, next section, next diagram, you find between those two bookends, Jesus three times says exactly the same thing. Three times he says, I must suffer, die and rise, chapter 8. Chapter 9, he says, I must suffer, die and rise. Chapter 10, he says, I must suffer, die and rise. Exactly the same thing. And each time he follows it by saying to the disciples, now you must follow me. You must pick up your cross and live this cross-shaped way. You must deny yourself, put yourself last and follow me. Across that section, Mark also drops in, let's have the next diagram, some occasional reminders of what's going on. So you find he keeps on saying this phrase, on the way, on the way. Jesus was on the way to the cross. 
But his disciples were also on the way with him. And that doesn't just mean they happen to be travelling to Jerusalem. It's a reminder they are also to follow this way of the cross. Suffer, die to self, and then rise with Christ. That is the way. The whole way that Mark has written this and structured this, and the way the teaching of Jesus comes to us, is all to emphasise it's about being a disciple following Jesus, the cross-shaped way. Now, that's the big section that our verses are in. And there's one simple but essential point I want to make about it. If If everything else goes over your head this morning, make sure this doesn't. Here's the one simple but essential point. Jesus doesn't just want you to assent to what he says. He doesn't want you just to agree with his truth. He doesn't want you just to call yourself a Christian. He calls you to follow him. That's very simple truth, but that is the essential truth this morning. Jesus calls you to follow him, to follow him. Children, Jesus doesn't want you just to call yourself a Christian. He doesn't even just want you to believe the Bible. He doesn't even just want you to be baptised. He wants you to follow him. That means living his way. The way he tells us by his teaching and his example. Now there's the big lesson. Everything, everything else is, is a subpart, a small part of that big lesson. Jesus calls us to follow him. Now let's narrow it down onto one subject. Let's get into Mark chapter 10. We can get rid of the diagram, thank you. Mark chapter 10, we have following Jesus in marriage ethics. Following Jesus in this subject of marriage and divorce. Now, the Pharisees were these religious leaders of the time and they had a question for Jesus. And it's in verse 2. Mark chapter 10, verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, Jesus says in in verse 3, you say, is it lawful? What does the law God gave through Moses say? And the Pharisees give an answer. Verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's their answer. That's what the law says. But their answer is a bit like this. My wife Lou used to be a nurse in a doctor's surgery. And once a man came in to see her and she needed to weigh him. But he had his big workman boots on. That would distort the weight, the the reading. She weighed him. So she said to him, "Uh, could you just take those big boots off and get on these scales and I'll weigh you. So he took his big boots off, tucked them under his arms and stepped on the scales. Now, he did what she said, but he missed the point. He did exactly what she said, took his boots off, but he completely missed the point. And the Pharisees are being a bit like that. They have quoted what God said accurately and they have totally missed the point. You see, the point of that law was to regulate what sinners were doing. Sinners were breaking marriages. And so God gave a law to safeguard the vulnerable, who tended to be the women. In fact, 
always in that society were the women. He, he gave a system of certificates so it could be made clear that they were free of that husband who'd broken the marriage. But it doesn't mean he approved of them breaking the marriage. The Pharisees have quoted the letter of the law, but they've completely missed the point of the law. And so Jesus takes them back to God's original design at the start of the world. And it's very significant that when Jesus is asked about a very practical situation, he takes them back to God's design at creation. And so Jesus takes them back to Genesis 2 and God inventing marriage. And he quotes it in verse 7 and 8. Have a look at verse 7 and 8. It's a quote of Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Jesus says marriage is two becoming one, a unity that is so close it can be called one flesh. A unity that God gives and humans must not divide, which he says in verse 9. Verse 9, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I hope you can see already where Jesus is going, or actually has gone with this. Pharisees, you've got to understand God's design. And what marriage is, two becoming one, and therefore it is wrong for that to be broken. The law was to safeguard vulnerable women when it had been broken. But hang on a minute, do you notice what I've done? Do you notice the verse I've skipped? I jumped verse 6. Let's have a look at verse 6. Verse 6, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, That is a quote from Genesis 1. It's actually separate from what, well, if you were to read Genesis 1 and 2, it doesn't come together with what Jesus quotes from Genesis 2. Why does Jesus quote Genesis 1 in verse 6? Couldn't he have made his point by going straight to Genesis 2 and verse 7? But Jesus here puts God making us male and female in Genesis 1 together with what marriage is in Genesis 2. And he binds them both together. He's saying, two becoming one in marriage is based on God making us male and female in his image. You might have thought he could miss out verse 6 and still make his point, but Jesus says, no, the two go together, us being made male and female and God's design for marriage. Now, there's a whole load of lessons from that. Let me point out some to you. Here's one. Divorce laws at the time of Jesus treated women as their husband's property. Treated them like objects that you could then throw away when you wanted to move on to a new one. And Jesus says, no, marriage is based on the dignity of both men and women, made in God's image. So you must not treat your wife like an object, let alone an object to throw away and get a new one. Here's another lesson from it. The basis for marriage is the way God made us. Men and women who are similar, both made in God's image, but are different. 
And that gives marriage a unity that isn't just a contract. Do you have a contract for your phone? Are you tied into it for a year? But then after a year, you can get a new one, get a better one. And what Jesus is saying is marriage is not a contract. It isn't just like that. It isn't based on just what two people want at one point in time. It's based on how God has made us, male and female, that go together. And you might be seeing another lesson from that. The essence of marriage comes from God making us male and female. And that means it must unite together male and female. That means marriage cannot be a husband and a husband. Marriage cannot be a wife and a wife. Until, uh, whatever the law of the UK says, that just is not marriage. And we live in a very strange society where that needs to be said. Probably before the year 2000, you would have wondered why on earth I was saying that, because no society considered that marriage could be anything other than male and female, united together. So, Jesus has given us the essence of marriage in verses 6 to 8. He said that means don't separate in verse 9. And now he gives us another lesson in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11 and 12, he's saying, if you walk out on your wife and get a new one, in God's eyes you are still one with your first wife. And so your new marriage is adultery. Do you see that? If the two are made one, then you break that. Well, in God's eyes, you're still, whatever certificate you've got, you're still one, so your new marriage is an adultery. Now, this in Mark 10 is not all that the Bible says about divorce, let alone all that it says about marriage. It has more to say. So here Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, look, your certificate cannot change that the two have become one. But you find elsewhere, human sin can break that oneness. Human sin can break that oneness. And so the Bible allows divorce when the oneness has already been broken by adultery or desertion or cruelty. Let me say that again. The Bible we find elsewhere allows divorce when the oneness has already been broken whether by divorce, or di- sorry, by adultery, or by desertion, or by cruelty. And the Bible also allows remarriage when a person has been sinned against in such a way. They are free to remarry. Someone has broken their oneness with that person. They are free to remarry. Now, I realise that I have just bluntly and without any adornment stated the principles. And I also realise this is an area with so much hurt. And so many people who've been treated badly. And so many complicated, difficult family and marriage situations. I know that. And so, there is a lot of compassion and sensitivity needed. But we must first have the principles of Jesus clear. We must be first clear on his principles... And then we must apply them with compassion and sensitivity. 
Now, I've told you what Jesus says about divorce. Clearly, it is needed and relevant to us because 42% of marriages in the UK end in divorce. But we need teaching that's broader than that, has broader relevance, and this teaching does. This teaching is relevant to you even if you have no interest in marriage and divorce. Let me show you three ways. This teaching tells us that following Jesus, first of all, that it must be specific and definite. That it must be specific and definite. Not just general vague intentions. In 2017 there was a parade in Liverpool. Can you guess what it was? It was an LGBT pride parade. And a local important person spoke to the crowd at that parade. Can you guess who it was who spoke to them? It was the Bishop of Liverpool. And can you guess what he said to them? He spoke to the Gay Pride Parade and he said, God supports you and God is with you because love is love. That's what he said to them. But Jesus here, he doesn't just give vague principles like love is love. If it feels loving to you, do it. He gives specific, definite instructions, including what marriage is and what God says about divorce. Now, it isn't just the Bishop of Liverpool who gets this wrong, so I'm not here to throw stones at him. Well, I suppose I did throw a stone at him, but we also can get this wrong. Because I've heard people often objecting to specific, definite rules about what to do. I've heard Christians objecting, because they've said, no, 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 Christianity is about relationship, not rules. And it's the heart that matters. But Jesus says, yes, the heart matters. But if your heart is right, it should result in definite, specific obedience to his rules. Jesus gives definite instruction. And he says, if we love him, obey his commands. So this chapter, is it? It's not just telling you about divorce, it's telling you following Jesus involves specific, definite obedience. It also tells us following Jesus must be put into practice in family and marriage. Jesus has told us, carry your cross and follow me. And he means in every area of life. And chapter 10 reminds us, family and marriage matter to God. He invented them. If you are not following God in your family and your marriage, you're not following him at all. Children, following Jesus isn't just for coming to church on a Sunday, or discoverers on a Wednesday, or Friday club, rather obviously, on a Friday. It should also control how you treat your parents, and your brothers and sisters if you have them. I've told this before, but I think it's worth telling again. I heard of a boy who, one Sunday morning, his family were about to go to church. And he said to his parents, Mum and Dad, can we this Sunday do things the opposite way round to usual? What do you mean the opposite way round to usual? Well, he said, could we be kind and cheerful with each other and moaning and grumpy with the people at church? That would be the opposite way round to usual. Now, you laugh because you probably can identify with that because we're on our best behaviour with people at church. But there's a serious point here. Don't treat your family as a place where you can switch off from the principles Jesus has given 
As we saw last week, principles of put yourself last. Deny yourself. Exercise self-control. Serve others. Family is not a place to say, right, I'll switch off from them there while I put on a show at church. No. And the illustration points out, parents, your children will see it. What a bad witness. Mark 10 also tells us this. Following Jesus must take God's standards, not society's standards. Now, because we tend to think societies in the past were always more conservative, traditional, strict on morals, it can be hard for us to take in just how much what Jesus said was out of line with his society. So out of line with his society that in another gospel we find his disciples said to him, what you've said about divorce is just an impossible standard. If that's really true, it would be better to never get married. It's just too hard. But Jesus insists the standard comes from God when he created not from society. Don't let society swing it. What Jesus said was also dangerous for him. We skipped over verse 1. Let's go back to it. It is significant. Verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Do you know who was the ruler where he went across the Jordan to Judea? It was a man called Herod. Children, do you know about Herod? Probably from the Christmas story. But do you know what Herod had done to Jesus' cousin, called John the Baptist? He'd had him put in prison and then his head chopped off. Do you know why? Because because John the Baptist had said Herod is sinning to divorce and then marry his, I think it was his brother's ex-wife. John the Baptist had said it was a sin. And so he got put in prison and had his head chopped off. The Pharisees knew this full well, and Mark twice in other chapters tells us they were in league with the Herod supporters. And so, verse 2, they think, we will trap Jesus. Do you see, verse 2 says, their question was a trap, really. Will Jesus say what he really believes, or will he avoid it because it's dangerous to say? But Jesus hit it head on and he said, no, this divorce and remarriage is sinful. His answer in verse 11 says that Herod was wrong and his answer in verse 12 says that Herod's wife was wrong. And here's a chance to just get a reminder of the character of Jesus. He's such a wonderful character. Read through the Gospels and you find with prostitutes and adulterers and people whose marriages were a complete mess, including one who'd had five husbands and was living with a man she wasn't married with. He was so gentle. He was so kind. When they were humbly concerned about overcoming their sin. But with people who were sticking with their sin and proud about it, he was so stridently condemning, even even when they had power and even when it was dangerous. The character of Jesus is just what we need. Now, the lesson for us is obvious. I hope it's obvious. Stick with God's standards, not society's. Can you see where this is leading? 
I'll give you an illustration. Have you heard of Andrew Thorburn? Probably not. But if you're in Australia, you would have done. He's been in the news quite a bit in Australia. Andrew Thorburn was a very successful business leader. And in October, just gone, he was appointed CEO of a big football club in Australia. And they celebrated that they got this successful businessman and he was going to manage the club now and they've got a bright future ahead. And within 24 hours, they sacked him. Do you know why they sacked him? Because they discovered that he belonged to a church that said marriage is between male and female and all other sexual unions are sinful. And the club said to Andrew Thorburn, you must choose between your church and your job. And he said, okay, I'll choose my church and I'll lose my high-paying, high-status job. Well done to him. But would you? We've got to be confident in God's standards and not alter them however much they are out of line with society and they really are. I've got to try to quickly finish by bringing us back to the context again. So, we've delved into verses 1 to 12 but we must remember the context. It's all about following Jesus. We must, we must never have at church a talk that could be given by an atheist who believes in traditional values of marriage or by a Jehovah's Witness or by a Muslim because we must remember this is all about following Jesus. It means we can't just tick off, yes, I've obeyed about divorce because it comes in a section by Jesus all about denying self, putting ourselves last and others first. And that goes beyond divorce to our whole approach to marriage and life. And that means also that this isn't an optional extra. This isn't an optional extra. You go to buy a new car and you're told, well, you could have this model and these optional extras, a sunroof and air conditioning and your radio Bluetooth connects to your phone, if if there is such a thing. I think there is. Say, oh yeah, I'll have those optional extras. He says, oh, and you can also have these optional extras, four wheels. What are you talking about? Four wheels is not an optional extra on a car. Without them, it's not a car. Well, following Jesus, putting ourselves last, denying ourselves, serving others, carrying our cross, is not an optional extra. It's like the wheels on a car. Without it, you are not a Christian. Can we have that diagram up again just to, just to point out? Next one, I think, please. Those in blue is just some examples of every so often across this passage, Jesus says things like, you've got to lose your life to save it. You won't get into the kingdom of heaven without this. His language is strong to say this is not an optional extra. This is of the essence of being a Christian. Now, I must, before I finish, point out two other things that Jesus said. Uh, We can remove that, thank you. The disciples were amazed at the standard Jesus had set. They said, it's just too high. It cannot be done. And Jesus gave this answer in verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. 
All things are possible with God. Do you remember back in verse 5, we we're reminded the law couldn't change hard hearts. It could just regulate them and try to limit their bad effects. But in verse 27, Jesus says, but God can change hard hearts. He can make the selfish self-giving. He can make the self-promoter become a server of others. He can make us self-denying. Children at school, do you have assemblies? They restarted after COVID. Maybe in your assemblies they tell you to make yourself a better person. Maybe they tell you, try harder. Maybe they tell you, you can do it. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, you cannot change yourself. You can't change what comes out of your heart. But God can. Ask him. Uh, Let's see that diagram one last time and have there's some other things that go up on it. Only God makes this possible. But I want to point out, and we must see verse 45, where Jesus says he pays for our failures. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mustn't finish without this. It's so needed because marriage, relationships, sex family, we fail so much in these areas. Most of us feel our inadequacies in these areas and our guilt. And so what does Jesus say about that? Verse 45, he says he came to pay. That's what ransom means. He came to pay for our guilt and our failure. Notice when he says this, Back in chapter 8, he told the disciples, following me means denying yourself. And the disciples were so far from getting it that in chapter 9, they're having an argument, who's the greatest? And Jesus corrects them. In chapter 10, they're again making a bid for, I must be the greatest. They're pushing for top status. They're doing it again. And it's straight after that repeated failure. This is so significant. It is straight after that repeated failure. Jesus says, I have come to pay for your failures. I have come to give my life, to die on a cross, to pay for your guilt, to blot out, to wipe out, to remove the record of all our guilt and failures. That doesn't change the need to follow Jesus. That doesn't change the importance of following Jesus. But it says to those who are following Jesus, but find that they fail, find that they fall, are conscious of their guilt, are conscious of their inadequacy. It says to you, if that is you, there is welcome, there is acceptance, there is love from God for you. Not based on how well you do but based on Jesus paying for our failures.